Yo, yo, yo. What's up, everybody? Welcome hey. back hey, to hey, hey. Actually Podcast. This is going to be covering episode 10 of John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series on consciousness. I'm just going to pull this up on Facebook real fast. Get us started there as well. On the Book of the Faces. The Book of the Faces. Of the billion faces. What's up, book faces? Yo, yo, yo. All right. We are alive everywhere. Rocking and rolling. Looking good. Hope y'all are doing well out there. Welcome back to the stream. Actually, a podcast and our continued series, our learning journey covering John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis now continues. And we're going to just do a brief... Uh, overview of what we went through last episode Grab my notes. Yeah. yeah so last episode was on insight and we are getting a feel for how the mindfulness revolution uh why it's now occurring here in the west as we're trying to reincorporate ourselves so let me see where my notes begin here Awareness is structurally organizing somehow, and we're trying to figure out why and how it's doing that. Yeah, and he br- uh, he brought up the spotlight metaphor mm-hmm. that is inaccurate because it's not just you're only looking at one thing. Right. Um, so last week we discussed really what attention was and what mm-hmm. it does. So it's it's not a spotlight. It has a you know a primary fixation point, of course, but then it has the subsidiary to either side, and now. We're introduced the directionality of in, of attention, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. scaling up or scaling yes. down, or yeah. So it's like this layer mm-hmm. dynamic structuring that awareness is doing all the time. It's flown in and out of transparency to opacity shifts. Yeah, and to explain that real quick, so from if you're going from transparency into opacity, that means you're coming from a point where you can say see many things, and then. As you start to focus down onto a feature of one thing, you no longer are aware of the many things. So, you know, this scaling down is called meditation. So in meditation, what you do, the thing, the the feature, if you will, is you're scaling back into your body, going back in past your body, into your mind, regressing through the portions of your mind until you're just the consciousness. Now you're opaque to everything else, including your body, the external world, and everything. So the opposite of that is going from the opacity of the feature, the one thing, and moving mm-hmm. out until you get the gestalt, the whole yes, view. big picture view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're moving through meditation or contemplation, uh, the opacity to transparency or transparency to opacity and the gestalt to feature gestalt to feature or feature to gestalt mm-hmm. line they move in tandem with each other yes and, yes but yeah the the transparency to opacity thing uh kind of got me a little bit to get my head reasoned around it and the best way to describe it from last week's episode is imagine an object and then you're seeing the object with the probe now you're feeling the body into your sensations and then into your mind and then into your consciousness mm-hmm. and moving back and that would be transparent into opaque. Yes. Now going yes. from your mind and going out and going yes. to the full, you know, the fullness of the cup, if you will, is going into transparency. Mm-hmm. 
it took my mind a little bit to you know get a hold of that but it does make a lot of sense yes yes it does and for those that are just tuning in on this episode we did this experiment with Verveki where you feel how your awareness can become focal at different points so I can feel the shape of this notebook by just tapping on it I can get a sense of the shape of it I can also get a sense put my attention on the actual pin itself or the probe that I'm using I can get a sense of my fingers. I can get a sense of the sensation of my fingers. I can get a sense of my awareness of the sensation. And you can just keep going back, 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 or forward, forward, forward. Yeah, and the best way to explain gestalt versus features, and I think I have something that is coherent enough to show you guys, but it would be the letters in the words are the features, but Mm -hmm. the words themselves, you know, are the gestalt the overarching meaning and he gives the cat example and it's this okay so if you notice the cat he had Mm -hmm. nice Uh, yep being a toroidal we'll take a screenshot of this and we'll actually go through it yeah and you probably you probably didn't hear anything i was saying but you know hey i forgot (laughs) oh yeah you didn't have the mic right next to you oh yeah man lapel mics lapel mics in the future so yeah basically that that (laughs) that picture that you saw was the cat and the h and the a were the same symbol but it's the overarching meaning of the cat that you that helps you define which one's an a and which one's an h you know it's like well, in, the, in with C and T before it, it's definitely an A, but with T and E after it, it's definitely mm-hmm. an H. But the brain knows how, knows how to do this yeah. automatically because it's constantly going back and forth with, from yeah. opa- from opacity to transparency or from features to gestalt yeah. at the same time. So that's so brain is in this constant adjustment process at, at all at all times, and the enlightenment experience. Um, that we learn about in Buddha's awakening is when he realizes how you can wake up to the pure consciousness experience and to the outer flow experience at once and incorporate these two aspects Mm -hmm. of mindfulness, uh, meditation, and contemplation. So like reverence and internal Mm -hmm. investigation. And doing that helps mitigate the flaws of either end. You know, like what Verveki said last week was if, you know, you say dwell too much in the meditative aspect, like the scaling down aspect, you can choke. You, yeah. you fail, fail to make a decision or fail, you know, fail to see what the solution is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if you spend too much time in the opposite end, the contemplative end, you, you can, get stuck in a frame. Well, and you're you not to create a new frame. Yeah, and you you just basically you know go off into the ether and then fixate. Yes, and then you know so it's fixation versus choking, and mm-hmm. to prevent the two, you move through the two. Makes sense. Yeah. Yes, that's what I got out of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really like this chart, and I'm excited to see what you come up with as you design your your 3D spatial rendering of this process in a toroidal pattern. Um, I've seen a little bit of the schema that he's working on, and it's really, really cool. Yeah, I'm not going to show that to you yet because it's, it's not there, and it has inaccuracies. So It'll, it'll <laughs> come, though. It's, it's coming together. Oh. So gaining uh, deep insight into the patterns to look more deeply into the world is meditation. Scaling up, so that's scaling down. Scaling up 
it's that's the opacity the transparency yeah so things are becoming clear the overarching theme of everything is becoming more clear the structural mm-hmm. functional organization of mm-hmm. the thing is becoming more that takes clear. us up to ultra flow state and nothing yeah. is absolutely a feature that's really cool mm-hmm. that's really exciting letters what we need the features to understand you know the the word the letters of the word to understand mm-hmm. the word, but you need the words in the sentence. The words can be a feature in the sentence. You need all the words together to be able to understand what the sentence is too. Yeah, and that's that um, that arena uh, agent relationship mm-hmm. too. That you know, one is defining the other, is defining the other, is defining the other. Yes, yes, yes. The meditation moving towards the center. It's the language, and if we u- utilize the language of training, we're recognizing you want to get a fine grain focus. So you can utilize your feelings and sensations to constantly renew your interest and continually reframe, break frame, reframe, and make what you're looking at more and more salient to you. Like such as the state of presence, the body being alive in this moment. Normally we pay attention Mm -hmm. to our thoughts through our sensations, but we can actually take a step back and look at our sensations. So this is how meditation helps Mm -hmm. us Mm -hmm. to be able to recognize how our mind patterns. Yeah, and but to create a new frame, you need to be able to go out and And, contemplate. And then you could, you know, even once you okay, you have your sensations, then you can move back even further Mm -hmm. and to okay, what's the thing that is having a reaction to these sensations? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, And then what's the awareness of that? Yeah, and it's interesting to see too with this. Like, I, you know, I, I'm a big fan of like kung fu movies and stuff like that, and um, you know, like warrior monks and all that stuff. And at face value, yeah, it's super cool. But then if you watch it again with this mindset, it's like, oh, that's why they're doing that. Like, say, like you know, with Buddhist meditation, where you like say the stereotypical sitting under a waterfall. Well, at first you have to deal with the shock of the water hitting you, but then you move back through. Okay, the sensations. Okay, I feel like the sensations now. I am becoming aware of the thing that is having the emotional response to freezing and being pummeled mm-hmm. by water. But then you move back, you know, yeah. constantly regressing down to the mind until the pure consciousness a, event. Pure consciousness event. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, 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 it makes a lot more sense. It seems a, less, a little less mystical, but that's okay by me. Like, you know, I'm, 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 I do believe in certain mystical things, but I'm a, I'm a, pragmatic realist for the most part yeah. you kind of have to be um, i like it to be able to be conveyed to anybody yeah. even a scientific materialist and i like to, I, don't, I don't know how we're yeah. going to bridge this gap between science and mysticism without being able to do that i like i think mysticism is the world of um the things that cannot be measured and sciences should always be trying to measure the things that can't be measured because even if you can't measure the ultimate unmeasurable the exercise of trying gives you more understanding mm-hmm absolutely yeah 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 i found it contemplation come from the mm. word temple looking up to the divine yeah yeah, yeah. or theoria, looking deep into some, theory is looking deep into something right it's it's a theory so a theory is a species of theoria theories are a species of theoria mm-hmm. so theoria is what we utilize in general mm-hmm. whatever kind of theory it is to be able to see more deeply yes so we're looking for a continuous scaling down and scaling up together. Um, and that's why Vipassana um, plus uh, meta contemplation plus something like Tai Chi really helps upgrade the mindfulness practice to mm-hmm. another level. Because you got an inward practice in the meditation. you got an outward practice in the meta contemplation. 
and then you have a practice that incorporates the two, such as Tai yeah. Chi. And that state is uh, prajna or remember the being mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you're in this highest yeah. state of consciousness that humans have access to, then you are feeling that sati, that awakening, yeah. that remembering, re-belonging, re-becoming a mm-hmm. member of the world, that awakening into the fullness of reality and the fullness of, of oneself at once. So yeah, that's that's the trick. We're breaking up fr- inappropriate frames to create better frames constantly through our attention, through our awareness. And if we utilize our attention in an attentive, caring way, it seems that we're going to be in the most optimal mode to interact with our environments and one another. Yeah, and, and one little note I got here. It didn't get much time in the last episode, but mm-hmm. uh, the thing that has a terrible name but a great idea is quantum change theory the idea that there are higher states of consciousness yes kind of take that for granted yes because we talk about higher states well the idea that there is such thing as a higher state of consciousness that's a big idea that's Mm -hmm. like a really big idea Mm -hmm. like as if if you didn't have the conception of a higher state state of consciousness why would you try right true it's it's world changing and that it occurs does in fact appear to be mm-hmm. something and that is happening in the world people have these states a lot um from all different backgrounds all different kinds of life or walks of life and all different kinds mm-hmm. of reasons that not too too tight not too loose when we're scaling up and scaling down yeah. to find that golden mean is very important that's the opponent processing process that's the attenuating reciprocal dance that we can be in with reality so rather than resisting reality we can flow with reality and even our own internal thoughts and feelings and sensations so the mystical experience allows a transcendent flexibility of motivational Mm. scaling by being present we can become more insightful less representational less inferential we can gain mastery over our problem framing looking at the mind rather than through stepping back to center sort of practices help with this a lot and i've talked about this a lot on this podcast and we have several guided meditations in this vein that you guys should definitely check out Uh, we talked about the breathing in and the breathing out practices that utilize this insight and how non-duality itself is what's allowing us the most comprehensive capacity for insights as agents in arenas, constantly changing arenas. Yes, that mm. question of Buddha, are you a god? Yeah. No, I'm not. Are you an, an angelic messenger? No, no I'm, I'm not. not. Are you a prophet? These these guys come upon the Buddha after he's awakened and he's just glowing to them. It's like, are you a prophet? No, I'm not. Are you just a man? No, I'm not. Yeah. Well, what are you then? I am awake. Awake. <laughs> Sati. And that's where we get the word sati. Yes. yes. So we're looking for a, a system, a set of insights that brings about the most trustworthy information we can get from our experience to best navigate in the world. This is where mindfulness practices come in to the story and altered states of consciousness, how they recapitulate the actual mm. revolution from c- coming from dream to reality, like Plato's allegory of the mm. cave. 
And that's the question that we're going to get into now is why mindfulness? Why the psychedelic revolution? Why are animals and humans interested in higher states of consciousness? And you see this, the more intelligent the animal, uh, be they reindeer or dolphins or crows or what have you, they're engaging in different ways of achieving altered states of consciousness themselves mm-hmm. to reframe their reality, to get a new grasp and a better grasp on things overall. And we could we could keep on going further, but I think we'll we'll allow. Yeah, he, he does a good summation, but yeah, the, the summation. Yeah, is there any other interesting point? Uh, yeah, make meaning to solve the meaning crisis. Uh, uh, <laughs> the ultimate goal is coherence. Yes, to making sense, awakening, recovering meaning, gaining insight, <laughs> mystical insight that allows us flow and awakening. Yes, insight to make sense to gain coherence indeed to solve the meaning crisis that our species now finds itself in what an exciting time to be alive i wouldn't have any other time i wouldn't either i'm I'm real stressed and it's it's everything <laughs> i can do to keep from getting super depressed but it's, it's yeah but it's like the climax of a story it's it's certainly a, a major climactic point uh, at the very least uh, yeah like the first the first time you read a book and you're in it and you're just like Oh man, this really sucks. <laughs> if we were ever destined to become great stewards of this planet, which we have in some small pockets before, we have the great capacity to be great stewards. This would be part of the story. Mm-hmm. Us going through what we're going through right now and then finding the way to awaken from it together. Yeah. We need the collective wisdom making capacity to solve these problems. We none of us are going to be able to figure out any of these major meta crises related problems on our own they're they're too interrelated well in the past it was not just one person it was a whole string of people all Mm -hmm. somehow working together without like even with time vast amounts of time between them right you know so hey but here we are stuck in the middle with you yeah yeah all right guys so we're gonna jump back in now this is john verbeke's awakening from the meaning crisis episode 10 consciousness Welcome back to uh, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And last time we were talking um, more about mindfulness and trying to get an account of how mindfulness can bring about an insight, uh, not just a single insight but uh, 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 into a single problem, but a modal insight, a systematic insight that is fully transformative of the agent and arena relationship and bring about the alleviation of existential distress and the affordance of enhanced uh, uh, meaning. And we took a look at that by getting uh, into the machinery of attention and seeing that attention involves uh, two kinds of attentional scaling. Uh, Attention uh, involves an ability uh, to engage in a transparency opacity shift and also breaking up gestalt into features, scaling down, the kind of thing we can enhance in meditation. But it also involves an ability to scale up, to move from feature to gestalt, and to go from looking at something to looking more deeply into reality. And that in mindfulness, in meditation, we're practicing the scaling down to break inappropriate framing and scaling up to uh, train uh, making better framing. 
and that if we can optimize by learning how to fluently flow between the two, bringing in an aspect of fluency and flow that we've already talked about, then we could optimize our capacity uh, for much more comprehensive insight and we could take it, if we could take it to the depths of ourself, like we do in the pure consciousness event, and the depths of reality and the resonant at one minute, if we could integrate those, optimize between them, we could bring about prajna, a kind of non-duality that would be potentially transformative of the whole agent arena relationship, dissipate modal confusion, enhance meaning in life by bringing about one of the most powerful kinds of mystical experience, give people a sense of enhanced realness that will challenge, encourage, and empower them to transform all of their existence and bring about a tremendous increase in meaning in life. I talked about some recent cognitive science, including some of my own theoretical and experimental work that seems to be supporting the claim that these higher states of consciousness can bring about these quantum changes, these radical kinds of transformative experience. So today I want to talk about that. I want to talk about transformative experience and the pivotal uh, and really brilliant work of L.A. Paul uh, on the notion of transformative experience. But before I do that, we have to step back and talk a little bit about altered states of consciousness. We have to talk a little bit about what we mean by an altered state of consciousness, what we mean by this kind of transformation. And that, I mean, that gets us into one of the most difficult problems David Chalmers famously called it the hard problem of consciousness. Uh, Arthur Schopenhauer called it the world not. Trying to explain consciousness is like trying to explain God. Right? It is one of the hardest problems. I'm not going to endeavor to do all of that, although I'm going to try and make use of uh, some of the work that myself and Anderson Todd and Richard Wu have put into trying to uh, understand at least some of the important functions and properties of consciousness and why altered states of consciousness can be so affording of radical transformative experience. So one way to do this is to look at two sort of questions we can ask ourselves. One is what is consciousness? How does something like consciousness emerge out of the brain? That's sort of the nature of consciousness Uh, and a lot of people are doing a lot of work on that. Um, and then we can also ask questions about what's the function of consciousness? What does consciousness do? Those aren't the same question, uh, because uh, you may be surprised to hear that we don't have a consensus on what consciousness does. Most people know that consciousness is a mystery, but most people don't realize that what consciousness does is also a mystery. I mean, think about it this way. You love your consciousness. You identify with it. You don't just, and you don't know your consciousness the way you know other things. You know your consciousness by being conscious. Like if I ask you if you're conscious right now, you are. How did you do that? You just are conscious, and you know that you're conscious. Knowing and being, remember Aristotle conformity, right, are the same. You participate in your consciousness. But and, and, and what would, you, would you, what would you give it up for? What have I said to you? You could have unlimited power and wealth. All you have to sacrifice is any consciousness of it. Would you take the deal? Of course not. But what does it do? Well, you say, well, well it's ob- no, it's not obvious. 
Because you can do, and you do most of your things without consciousness. I, I have no understanding, no conscious awareness, I should say, I have some scientific understanding, I have no conscious awareness of what my brain is doing that is allowing me to generate speech. Do you? You don't. This complex, sophisticated thing that we still can't get artificial intelligence to do well, it's happening almost completely unconsciously. What's my consciousness for? What does it do? So, two really important questions. How does something as mysterious and strange arise out of matter? That's the nature question. And what does it do? Again, I am not going to presume or dare to try and answer these comprehensively. I don't need that for what we're doing here because I'm not trying to solve the hard problem of consciousness. I'm trying to solve the hard problem of meaning. One hard problem at a time, please. But what I want to do is show you how a convergence of work, that some of the best work that's being done on consciousness, points towards something that will tell us why altered states of consciousness can be so valuable to us. So one, about, one of the best accounts for the function of consciousness is called the global workspace theory. So the idea is that your consciousness functions very much like the desktop of your computer. So here's the idea. You have your desktop, and then you have all your files, right? And what you can do is you can activate a file. You can bring that information into the desktop, and you can activate this file and bring it into the desktop. And then these pieces of information can interact with each other. And then you can broadcast back to any or all or just one file the changes you've brought about. That's how your desktop works. That's how you use it. Well, what's the analogy? The analogy is here's all of your unconscious processing in your brain. And what you do is you retrieve it, bring it into a space, something like working memory. You activate it so that the pieces of information can interact with each other. And then you broadcast it back, right, to any and all of the existing files. Why do you want to do that? Why do you do it on your computer? Well, you don't want all of your files active at the same time because that's a disaster. You want to be able, and notice what's going on here, you want to be able to select certain pieces of information that are relevant, bring them together, transform them in a way that's relevant, and then broadcast the changes back that are needed. So the global workspace theory says this is, and it's gaining a lot of empirical evidence to support it, says this is what consciousness is functioning to do. Now this is very general. So more specifically, and uh, so this theory is associated with bars, and then there was a paper by Bars, Shanahan and Bars, that more specifically try to answer the question about, yeah, but what, what, why this machinery? Bars also published uh, a, a, an attempt to answer that question more specifically in uh, the Cambridge Handbook of Consciousness. What it comes down to is the idea that what, what, what this architecture is helping to do is to solve a problem that's called the frame problem. 
Now, I'm going to talk much later in specifically what the frame problem is, so put a pin in it. We're going to come back to it. But the basic idea here is right, what this is doing is helping you to zero in on relevant information. And that's very, very important because there are, way, there, there are sort of three areas in which this is a huge issue. One is all of the information that's available to me right now. We're going to have to talk about this later, but technically... Mathematically, the amount of information that's available in this room is astronomically vast. And I can't, I can't make use of all of it. I get overwhelmed by it. So part of what I have to do is select out of all of that information what information I'm going to make use of. I also have a huge amount of information in my memory. Overwhelming. It's vast. And the possible ways it could be connected I have to select from some of that. And then I have to put those pieces of information together. And all the ways I can put together the information in the, from out there and the information about here, also vast and overwhelming. Later on, I'm going to give you mathematical arguments about this. Right now, I just need you to get it intuitively. So what consciousness is doing right, is it's helping the, these problems. It's helping you zero in on the relevant information. The relevant information from out there, the relevant information from in here, and the relevant information that will help put those pieces of information together for you in the way that it's needed. Just like you do that. You do that with your computer. You search through your memory. You select what's relevant. You bring it onto the desktop. You put it together in a relevant manner, right? And then you use it in a relevant way. But we can't use a homuncular explanation. There's no little man running inside. What's doing all of that in a self-organizing fashion is your consciousness. This helps to explain why consciousness is so tightly associated with working memory, and working memory is so tightly associated with intelligence. Okay, so the core function of consciousness seems to be to help you realize, become aware of, actualize, put into action relevance, relevant information. We're going to come back to this in more depth. This is a good place to stop. He's already covered a lot. Before we go on, we should uh, sum up that. Yeah, that was, that was a lot, but not, not too much. No, no, I like where he's going with this, though. Uh, we're not going to try and explain the the great mystery of consciousness, but we're going to understand it as well as we can because trying to explain consciousness is like trying to explain God. Yes. Yes. Doesn't mean what, we shouldn't yeah. try, but, you know. Yeah, but what it is and what it does is a mystery to us, yet we know it by being it. Knowing and being, being the same thing as we learned from the uh, Neoplatonists. Yeah, and that's that's one one mode as well like so like you know there's the being like so the knowing by being i would call one mode but then the knowing by explaining is mm -hmm. what we're having a hard time with because that's the realm like what he brought up with like ai has a hard time with this it's like well because we haven't we're not able to explain it enough to actually explain it to the to computer this is yeah. what to do yeah for and them it, to replicate yeah, it, yeah. Um, it just i don't know if that was directly brought up but that's what popped into my head is there's two different modes go or there's a mode 
we exist in the being mode of consciousness. You, mm-hmm. you, you, you are conscious. But when we're trying to make other things conscious or tell if other things conscious, that's another mode. That's mm. that's the explaining mode. Yes, yes. Um, but you know, it has its purpose. You know, like if you just knew by explaining, you probably wouldn't know it as deeply as you would by being it. But if you just start being it, it's really freaking hard to explain it. Yes, yeah, it goes both <laughs> ways, doesn't it? Yeah. So he's bringing up this global workspace theory. Mm where the brain seems to be acting like a desktop and that it will identify the relevant information from the vast amount of info that is available at any time. Which is ultimately overwhelming. And like your Mm -hmm. eyes, or your brain does this because your eyes pick up way more information than your brain could possibly ever use. So it has to limit only to what's relevant and usually what's in the center of the eye or what's moving. Right. Yes. You know, because like if you mm-hmm. stick your hand out like this and you look forward for long enough, eventually the hand disappears until it moves. Yes. So the brain knows so. how to ex- mm-hmm. ignore a lot of information to be able to focus on what matters for its attention. Well, it would have moment. to. What do you call it? Uh, catastrophe or what was the word that he used? Uh, uh, disastrous. Yes. yes, it would be yes. disaster. That's a disaster. Everything's falling apart. There's too much. I can't handle it. You know. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's just too much information. So it helps to it helps us to zero in on the relevant information in a way that it's needed in that moment. And he said, "Put put a pin in the frame the framing problem, mm-hmm. which we'll put yeah, a pin we'll in it. Back to that. We'll, we'll put a pin in it. Um. So, but we do know consciousness tightly associates with working memory, mm-hmm. and working memory with intelligence." So the the core feature of consciousness seems that it helps us to organize and actualize. Well, it might be a might be a way that you can help uh, organize information so that we may best actualize ourselves. You know, using techniques to help expand consciousness and meaning and all that probably will help with your general intelligence as well. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. to mention answering that great conundrum of having meaning in life yeah right experiencing that sense of belonging and mattering and and all of that yeah so uh any, anything else on that little section i don't think so that's okay. as far as my notes go yeah, okay all right guys all we're right. gonna jump back in here yes 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 there's a more neuroscientific and psychological account by people like Bor and seth that say when we measure when people are conscious it seems to correlate with certain kinds of brain activity. What kind of brain activity? The brain activity that seems to be involved when people are chunking information or when they are restructuring it like an insight. I've already shown you this. This ability to manipulate attention, to afford insight. They're arguing that that's one of the key functions of consciousness. But what does... What is all of that doing? It's the same thing, right? The Boren-Seth model is basically saying the function of consciousness is to give you a dynamic improvement in your ability to zero in on relevant information. One of the most prominent theories of the nature of consciousness right now is Tononi's integrated information theory. Integrated information theory. Now, his theory is not about the uh, function of consciousness, it's about the nature of consciousness. But, of course, 
He's going to give a derived account of the function. What is consciousness according to him? It's how powerfully integrated in pieces of information are. How much one piece of information in your brain is causally dependent on interacting and affecting other pieces of information in your brain. The more tightly the integration, the more powerful right, the processing. And what he would say is the more likely that complex, as he calls it, because it's actually a complexification of information, is going to be at affording consciousness. But then when you ask him, well, why is consciousness why? That might be what consciousness is. I think there's much more to consciousness, but for the sake of argument. That might be what consciousness is, but why is consciousness doing this massive complexification of information? So he actually proposes something like a Turing test for consciousness. He says you can test to see how conscious a system is by giving it anomalous pictures and figuring out if the pictures don't make good sense. Here, here, here's, look, here's the idea. When I'm complexifying, when I'm doing this, this very dynamic integration of information, what, what that's tracking is how much I'm actually picking up on right, the, the patterns in the world, making sense of the world. The reason why I'm doing this is precisely because I'm trying to, as best I can, track the complexity of the world. So, what's the main function? Well, the main function of the integrated information is to allow you to determine if pieces of information are relevant to each other and relevant to you. So, What consciousness seems to be, now, let's be careful what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that every instance of relevance realization is consciousness. What I'm, see, what I'm arguing is that what consciousness seems to do is the following. It seems to be a way in which you can coordinate attention and other related abilities of awareness so as to optimize how insightfully you can make sense of your world. So that's why you need consciousness for complex situations that require insight, for situations and problems that have a high degree of novelty or challenge in them. It's why you can reduce consciousness when the problem has become very well-defined for you, that doesn't have a high degree of novelty, it doesn't require insight. I don't know if this is a complete account of the function of consciousness, But it explains something we've already noted. That when you have an insight, what do you have? You have a flash. It's like you get a sudden brightening of consciousness. It explains why you might want to alter your state of consciousness. Because if I alter my state of consciousness, I'm going to alter what I'm finding relevant and how it is standing out for me. How it is salient for me. Let's put a lot of this stuff together. The machinery we had about attention, stuff we've talked about about fluency, stuff we talked about salience. And notice a phenomenon that Mateson called sizing up. Right? Part of what's happening, part of what consciousness is doing 
is it's creating a salience landscape for me. Now, what does that mean for me? Well, first of all, I'm picking out, out of all of the things, <clears throat> all of the things I could pick out, and when I say I, I don't mean me, I mean my consciousness, I'm picking out some features. You are not paying attention to every piece of information in this room. You can't. It's overwhelmingly vast. But you pick out on some. And then what you do also is you begin, so you've already selected, and you start to prioritize it, and you foreground some of it. So for example, presumably I'm foregrounded, and what's around me is backgrounded. And of course, we've already seen it's going both ways. Remember that, right? And notice, again, what I'm looking at, what I'm looking through, and I'm taking the features and I'm starting to foreground them, and then I'm going to gestalt those features. I'm going to figure. I'm going to create a figure. We use this language of figuring out. Figuring out. I'm, ma I'm making something, I'm making it stand out even more, more salient to me. And I'm also configuring, configuring it together. So, all the features, and then foregrounded, and then this is getting configured, right? right? And this also is feeding back. And then, of course, I'm framing problems. And framing problems. We've been talking about that all through this series. So you've got a very complex dynamical system at work. So what's happening right now is your consciousness is creating a salience landscape. Some things are rising up, right, out of unintelligibility as features that are getting foregrounded and configured and then you're framing problems around them and then things are shifting and, uh, and your attention is shifting around. Other things are becoming more... and you're, you've got this highly textured, highly flowing salience landscape. That's what it's like to be here right now. Now, there's more going on, of course, right? So part of what I'm doing, I get this salience landscape, and my problem is around the cup. But I, I, I'm not quite sure what... So I move around it. I try to get into an optimal position. If I get too close, I lose too much of the gestalt. If I get too, too far away, right, I may see the whole thing, but I'm losing the details. I need to get to the right place where I can metaphorically, and also literally in this sense, get what Marlo Ponti calls an optimal grip on it. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get, an, I'm optimizing between gestalt and feature, between looking through and looking at, I'm optimizing within this whole sizing up. So I'm taking my salience landscape, 
and I'm using it to get an optimal grip on things. Not maximal, and grip is meant here as a metaphor. It's meant for my contact, my interactional contact. How can we understand what this optimal grip is doing? Look, when I, when I get the salience landscape and I adjust, an affordance opens up. Okay, what's an affordance? This is, goes back to Gibson, the idea of visual perception as this active process of landscaping. The cup is graspable to me. That's not a property of the cup per se because it's not graspable by a praying mantis. It's not a property just of my hand because, right, I can't, my hand alone can't grasp. An affordance is, right, setting up a relationship of coordination between the constraints in the thing and the constraints in my hand so that I can engage in an interaction. So it's a way of co-identifying. The cup is, this thing is, it's been been salient to me. I've got now an optimal grip on it such that I can create affordances. So it is presenting itself to me and I am configuring myself to it. It is graspable by me. And what? And this is Gibson's point. You don't really, you don't see like colors and shapes. What you see are affordances. I, I see that this is walkable. That this is where I can place things. That this is movable. So. Do you see? You get the basics. The salience landscape sort of gets you in contact. Then you start the optimal gripping, and the optimal gripping gets you into the creation of affordances, where basically the agent and the arena are being co-identified. I'm a grasper, and this is graspable. I am presenting myself to it, and it is presenting itself to me. So you have consciousness is setting up a salience landscape, but within this, you're doing this process of sizing up and that produces a presence landscape. You get a whole bunch of, a whole affordance network is laid out for you. But that's not enough. Remember we talked about with flow. You need to be able to track the differences between correlational patterns and causal patterns. As you interact with things, your brain is figuring out the causal patterns as opposed to the merely correlational. This is the depth landscape. This is your ability to figure out. You, you see kids doing this, right? You got the, you got the, the two-year-old. And they got the spoon. And, right? and what do they, they pick up the spoon, and they drop it. Before. You pick it up, they pick it up, and they... 
And they do this over and over again. Why are they doing that? Because they're trying to use their salience landscape to generate affordances. The spoon is graspable, it's throwable, it's droppable. But why are they doing, why do they repeatedly grasp and throw and drop? Because they're trying to figure out the causal patterns around the spoon. They're transforming the salience landscape into a presence landscape and that into a depth landscape. They're getting a deep kind of understanding, not in words, but interactionally, of the spoon. This is what consciousness is doing for you. It's doing it right now. It's laying out, right? It's, it's, all of this is a way in which consciousness is helping you zero in on relevant information. It's creating this textured salience landscape so that certain things stand, uh, stand out for you and other things don't as much. And it's constantly shifting dynamically. And then within that, it's creating a presence landscape of how you and what's salient are being co-identified, right? Coupled together into an agent and arena relationship. And then it's also affording you, and that's dynamic, because the affordances are constantly shifting. And then that's affording you tracking the causal patterns, getting into deeper contact with the guts of the world. That's what consciousness is doing. Okay. What up? Wow. Okay, go ahead, Brabeki. It's it's getting trippy again. <laughs> uh, well, the what is the uh, consciousness doing? It's giving us a dynamic ability to zero in on relevant mm. information. Uh, yes, and it filters out the the non-relevant, so we don't go absolutely mad and can't tell or can't tell anything from anything else right you got to be able to narrow in so the nature of consciousness how tight that integration is the more powerful the processing mm. power that we have but why do we have this complexification of information that we that we practice and that's because when we go into the complexified mode, we can pick up patterns, we can make sense of the world. And so the brain is, through consciousness, it's trying to track that complexity. Its function seems to be to determine what's relevant. Yeah. In a way that we can utilize it, our attention and awareness, to further realize relevance and be in higher states, increasing increasingly optimal states of gripping onto into rea reality. Yeah. And so you brought up the integrated information theory, mm -hmm. which is how much, yes, I, how much I, one, I. one bit of information relates to another bit of information. And, and, you know, that's helpful because, you know, I really don't need to know about that thing off in the corner over there mm -hmm. when I'm worried about what's going on with this pen. Yes. Because yes. that has very little to do with the pen. I'm mm -hmm. more concerned about getting it all over my hands and the hand being there and yeah, right. touching myself with it and all that stuff that I am about that thing in the corner across mm -hmm. the room. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so you can actually 
focus. You can actually optimally interact mm-hmm. and do what mm-hmm. you're trying to do in this moment. And there's a consciousness test that he brought up too. Is uh, you know basically get, I think it was for AI. Um, it'd be interesting if it was for people, but I think it was for AI. Is you give anomalous pictures and see which ones the AI makes the most sense out mm-hmm. of. So like maybe you'll have some that are actual photos of like mountains with a little you know house on a river going down and stuff like that but then you'll see other ones that kind of look a little bit like mountains but they're all like mushmashed and you know more um a little more abstract yeah the impressionist kind of thing you know if you ever seen starry night yeah you get the gist that that's a starry night but show that to an ai and they're gonna be like um that is the picture of starry night yeah (laughs) yeah right uh and uh well, let's see i like oh. the, that he brought up insight is like a flash it's like a brightening mm-hmm. of consciousness right, right before that though um we can reduce our consciousness once yes. we get a firmer grasp of yes. things like the whole you know get get up in the morning put on your coffee um take a poop you don't really got to put much thought into that no because you know where the coffee maker is you know where your toilet you is you've done this a million already yeah so yeah. you don't really need much consciousness for memory. that and you just zone yeah. out and you do it through yeah. yeah that's crazy how it can narrow in and out like that it, so it can calibrate and, it, mm-hmm. and it's like we're constantly tuning into reality at all all the time mm-hmm. this explains why altering consciousness to helps us to alter what's standing out and salient to us mm-hmm. So we can continually size up and create a better informed salience landscape of our reality. And then he gets into this whole featureization and to foregrounding and figuration and to framing process that can happen. That's happening both ways at all times. Your mic just has got a life of its own. It's hey, time to get out of frame. It's because i got to flip it out around the other way and get it so the screw. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like that to figure out how we have that in our language mm-hmm. it's to make something stand out more and configure it together mm-hmm. an idea to configure things together better so we can figure it out yeah like so in the sal- salience landscape i like how he broke it down you know mm-hmm. so featureization you see the features in this mm-hmm. case if you're looking at us you see two dudes you know some yeah. questionable stuff in the background um and then you've got the foregrounding. So instead of the questionable stuff in the background, we're foregrounded, we're foregrounded we're the for you. Thing to pay attention to. And then so there's, the brain does this featureization process. Yeah. And what's, then, what's the relevant features? Foregrounds them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then the figureization is you're making, you're you're figuring out, you're configuring. Okay, what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then you frame it. And yes. the whole experience, I guess, in this case, is you're listening to us because either you want to learn more or you just support us so much that you'll just listen to us. Hey, you're putting out with it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for humoring us. But, yeah, the one, two, three, the four Fs for salience landscape, mm-hmm. featureization, foregrounding, foregrounding, figurization, and framing. Framing. But the next one is the the affordance landscapes yes the salience landscapes what's it like to be here now to get an optimal grip and then we recognize the affordances Mm -hmm. we get into this mode of presence where we open up into relationship of congruence we're recognizing different potentials that we Mm -hmm. that are graspable in our visual perception is it graspable is it movable is it placeable Mm -hmm. is it unable yes it's sitable is it right yeah so this is getting the agent arena Mm co-identified and 
it's becoming danceable. There's an elbow for you. Yeah. Danceable with, with the experience. <laughs> I'll never look at bowls again uh, the same way again. You know? <laughs> so within the salience landscape process, we have the process of sizing up, which creates the presence landscape with its network of affordances. Mm-hmm. And then you can generate flow, uh, the recognition of these causal patterns, and get into this interrelational dance mm-hmm. with the between yourself, the agent, and the arena. And the depth landscape is the capacity for figuring all of this stuff out. So yeah. you see the kid with the spoon. Well, and to see, see the causal patterns, like why when I go like this, does it do that? And why like why does it hit against yeah. that? Or why does it hurt my hand when I do it this yeah. certain way? Um, opposed to correlational, you know, it's like, um, I don't know. I scream, I get something. Right. Um, you know, I'd, I would assume that it was food, but maybe that you know only worked one time because then I threw the food all over the ground. But now, I can learn instead of screaming, go ha ma 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 ma. Oh, that gets me food. Yes. There's a cause and effect. Yes, with that. there's a real cause and effect. Oh, there. they understand. That's reliable. Oh, they have the capacity of understanding what I need. Hold on, oh. let me. Oh, I- Ah, nah, nah, nah. The spoon puts food yeah, in my face. Banana. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Spinach. No, no, no. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. These. Yeah. I like the landscape. Uh, metaphor imagery with this though you know yes. your salience landscape your presence landscape mm-hmm. and then your depth landscape you know it really like puts you put puts you into it it does yes this is what consciousness is doing it's creating this texturized landscape of potentials to be able to transform salience to presence to depth to better interact mm-hmm. with the environment uh, you got any more notes on this? or That's all I got so all right, far. So yeah. we should take the middle of the road break so I can go Let's pee. Let's do that. We're going to take a quick break here, water. guys. Yeah, grab yourself a drink. Get yourself some snack. Pop some corn. And we'll be right back. <laughs> yo, yo, we're back. We are back. What's up, everybody? So one little anecdote, and I'd just like to share this to anybody who's watching. Um, so our monitoring for the color balance, and this has been something we've been working on for a while. We look super pink, but then when we go and look at the live stream, it looks normal. So if you notice anything funny and you're a technical guy and you want to go, well, maybe you should try this, please, please let us know know. because we'd really, we want to make this the best that we can for you, not just info wise, but also a pleasurable experience to watch and listen to. Yes. Yes. We're proving every aspect of this show as we go. So yeah, we're definitely open to your uh, insights your thoughts, your advice. And just a 30,000-foot view of where we were just at. We went through the featureization, foregrounding, figureization, framing. um, And consciousness is doing. Yes, yes. the landscapes, the salient landscapes, the presence landscapes, and the depth landscapes that Mm -hmm. we naturally use to find meaning. Even babies do it to understand things Mm -hmm. causatively. Yes. Yes. So. All right. So back to John Brabeke's awakening from the meaning crisis. Onward ho! Onward ho! So if I were to transform my consciousness, I'm going to be transforming all of this machinery. I'm going to be transforming my salience landscape, my presence landscape, my depth landscape, the patterns I'm going to track, the kind of agent I can be, the kind of arena I can be in, are going to be radically transformed. 
and I won't have just a flash of insight like I do with a nine-dot problem. I will have a systematic... Look, an altered state of consciousness is not, a ch- it's not an insight in consciousness. It's an insight of consciousness. It's a, it's a radical transformation of all of your landscapes, not just this particular problem. Look, I'll try and show you what I mean by this, by a systematic insight. So this goes back to childhood development, pivotal work of Piaget in psychology. And this is picking up again on one of the metaphors we were using. We use wisdom is like enlightenment. Wisdom is like waking up. And here's another one. Wisdom, like as the child is to the adult, the adult is to the sage. Wisdom is like growing up. Okay, so you take a four-year-old and you do this. You count out five candies. One, two, three, four, five. You need a four-year-old because they can count. And they understand that five is more than four. It's less than six. You count it out. Right? And then you count out five more candies. One, two, three, four, five. You show them that like this. And you say, which, which row do you want? And they reliably, and you've counted. They know there's five here. They know that there's five here. But they confidently pick this row. And here's the thing. All the kids do it. And that mistake is related to a whole bunch of other kinds of mistakes they're making. They're not making just a single error. Look, this is what made Piaget a great, great scientist. Why he's a pivotal figure in trying to understand development. And think about Aristotle and development. See, there had been lots of IQ testing way before Piaget. People have been testing kids' IQ for a while. And they had been throwing away the errors as garbage, because what you paid attention to was the, the, what the kid got right. Yay, success and Protestant work ethic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Piaget had this insight, but, it is a, but wait, wait, wait. What if there's a pattern in the errors? If the errors are systematic and not random, then that would mean that there are constraints. Remember constraints? There are constraints operating in the child's cognition. And maybe we could understand and think about Aristotle again and biology, because Piaget was, guess what, a biologist. Maybe we could understand development in terms of how those constraints are shifting and how they're, how they're shaping the kid's sensory motor interaction with the world. And what he found was, in fact, that the errors are systematic. The kids are, all of the kids are making this kind of error, and they're making a whole bunch of related errors. There's a whole system of errors. And so that points to some underlying set of constraints. Now, what's going on? What's going on here? Why is the kid picking the, the lower row? Because it takes up more space. Think about everything we've talked about here. This variable is super salient to them. Their salience landscape is only picking up on that. Now, you, I hope, don't fall prey to this because you're also picking up on another variable at the same time. You also make salient that the extra space is non-candy space and therefore is what? Not relevant. 
but the kid doesn't pick up on that. Their salience landscape is not sizing that up. And so they don't have the same affordance as you. Now notice this. You see through this illusion because your salience landscape has been trained to pay attention to these multiple variables at the same time. The way you size things up, integrate them in attention, means you don't fall prey to this. Part of the way in which you become wiser than the child, you don't fall prey to self-deceptive illusion, is because you've trained your salience landscape to zero in on the relative information in the relevant way. Now, think about this. Remember we talked about salience? And how when things are super salient to you, that triggers bullshitting and self-deception. If I could change my salience landscape, I don't fall prey to this. I don't fall prey to the illusion. And I won't act foolishly. Now, what I need you to understand is, here's a whole bunch of these errors that the kid is making. They form a system, and they all have to do with the fact that the salience landscape has not been sufficiently cultivated. So the kid might have an insight here, but it doesn't really matter because they're still going to be blocked in this problem and this problem and this problem. They're still going to be locked into a particular stage of development. But what if, and this is an idea that working out in conjunction with Jun-sung Kim, what if you didn't have a, a single insight? What if you had a systematic insight, an insight that changed the whole system? It wasn't an insight in your consciousness. It was an insight of your consciousness in which you're changing your salience landscaping as opposed to just changing how you're framing a particular problem. That's what the child does when it develops. It actually changes its salience landscaping so that this whole system of errors falls away and it starts to see through an illusion and into reality. Here's the thing you need to now think. You've heard me say it. You have trained your salience landscape so that you do not fall prey to the systematic illusions of the four-year-old. Yes? Yes. But you know what? You are falling prey to a lot of systematic illusions you're not aware of because you can only become aware of them if you can transform your salience landscape, your presence landscape, and your depth landscape to get in at what is actually most relevant systematically, not here and here. All of us can have an insight here and here, but what, if is, what is it to have a systematic improvement in insight? That's to be wise. When you have salience systematically tracking presence in depth so that you can wisely zero in on the relevant information, and make your life more meaningful. That's your significance landscape. It protects you from bullshitting. 
It allows you to see through illusion and into reality, and it affords you having things more present to you. It would afford you to have a more comprehensive, flowing relationship with reality. Altered states of consciousness have this potential to create a, a insight of consciousness. Now, they also have the potential to do the opposite, right? They have the potential to screw up your salience landscaping and make yourself more prone to bullshit, more prone to self-deception. That's why most altered states of consciousness are rejected as being illusory and delusory. But why is it then, why is it then that certain altered states of consciousness have the opposite? Why is it that certain altered states of consciousness feel like this? Like, wait, it all makes sense now. I'm seeing through illusion into reality in a way I haven't before. Why is that altered state more real, the really real, as Plato is fond of saying? And this, this every day, is less real. Why do I feel like I woke up, that I became right, an adult to my previous form that seemed to me like a child? What's going on? All right, guys, we're back. Yeah, I'm back. Yeah, let's go over wherever Vicky just took us because it's starting to get interesting. So landscape transformation and uh, the yes. whole idea of wisdom is like growing up. So we'll mm-hmm. we'll look at this from like what do children do that we're above? And he did the uh, he explained the candy exercise, which was you know put a row of candies. Yes. And that are, say, closer together, and then another row where they're wider apart and get a four-year-old. Same number. It's like five in each row, yeah. but one is wider apart than there's the a, other. There's another experiment. And so it looks bigger. Mm-hmm. And there's and another it's... experiment that shows this as well, which is if you take two cups that are like look like different sizes but the, hold the same volume of liquid, and you take a vial of liquid and you pour it into one, mm-hmm. and then you pour it into the other, and you ask them which one has more liquid in it, they'll always go for the one that looks taller. Taller, yeah. It looks like there's more in it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, have, you know, it that's a good can, one. That but, that can get an adult. This one only works on kids, even though they can count at four or five. Um, but I guess because they, they they are not counting the not candy space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because not not candy is salient in the sense of it doesn't matter yes. oh i see that that doesn't matter does not have as much depth of considerations yeah. to it yet yeah and uh so I, so yeah piaget recognized there's constraints in cognition and there's, really systema- there's systematic constraints yes because if you know if you threw out all the test results for the kids that picked the wrong answer mm-hmm. you'd have no, you'd have no kids that got it right that's right so this yeah, is a systemic um error um yes so training the salience landscape mm. allows us to recognize multiple variables at once mm-hmm. it it it, 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 it avoids bullshit yes because it it helps arm you against super salience yes so instead of something being super salient and real you can be like okay well put, yes. put that into my salient land deception 
Yeah. And well, the and to make a kind of a metaphor on top of a metaphor, but the the doesn't care about adhering to the truth is the space in between the candies. Mm-hmm. Even though it's super salient, it's like, well, if you care about, you know, if there's truth behind there's it, there's an impulsiveness saying, there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, but if you just go for the food and eat it all at once and you don't save that mammoth and part it out, mm-hmm. you're not going to survive as long. You well, could eat it well, all well, at Well, even once. like, you know, say like um, you're looking at reviews for a product you're trying to get off of Amazon, right? Or mm-hmm. whatever online thing where you can't actually handle the product. You, if it's you're an avid buyer... You can sift through what are the obvious bullshits. The five star, yeah. oh yeah, this was great, and all that stuff. And you're like, okay, there's no truth behind this. Yes. You know, same thing with you know, like you know, if you're the type of person that doesn't settle just on one one news source, and you know, by news source I mean like any one news source, you go to a whole bunch of different ones and you go look into it because you want to see through the bullshit and usually yes. you can because you know frankly if i if i'm running commercials on my network you better believe i'm putting a whole bunch of bullshit in there like if, you know uh especially yeah. with the partisan style news mm-hmm. well yeah today you're it's, not it's, well you're it's not very helpful to look at both sides how they're presenting it well there's the they're selling independent you something. journals are presenting it yeah well and even people who are selling you something when you watch like you know like people like hack their product if you're a wary buyer, you can, you know, if your salience landscaped is tuned enough to look for, to go in depth, look for yeah, the bullshit you can read up on the company. You can read yeah. the reviews of multiple different people and get multiple perspectives. Well, even beyond that, the inclination too, like, you know, where does the inclination come from? I think the inclination might come from the habit of changing your sale, your salience landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, regularly so we, we can most tightly optimally grip mm-hmm. with reality so we can be in yeah. the highest state of accord with reality so that we can survive the species is tuned to mm-hmm. survive and so we're constantly in this process of tuning calibrating mm-hmm. our landscapes and he's just brought up significance landscape now mm-hmm. to add yes. on to all of these landscapes but so we use altered states of consciousness well, first, we're using salience landscapes to figure causal patterns in our environment to transform mm-hmm. salience and consciousness, transform salience into presence and then into the depth. So we got into that. Yes. Um, and then from the depth, now we have the... What was and then it? we get to altered states, which give us radical transformations <laughs> so that we can get that deep insight into mm-hmm. our consciousness so that we the can get those deeper groups patterns. How is this significant? You know, which would be mm-hmm. the why do I need this product, frankly? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the significance landscape. Yeah. It affords you to have more things present at once so that you can more optimally mm-hmm. flow with yeah. reality. Yeah. Yes. And actually, if you can create a, like a, a hierarchy of importance, like um, you can hold many things in your head at once and they'll all flow into their time of importance as they go. It's like, you know, like how, like if you're like doing a job that requires. <clears throat> multitasking and, and multiple steps to kind of be done all at the same time, but not like at the same time, mm-hmm. like where you're doing one and then it's moving into the another and it's moving in another and it cycles mm-hmm. back and, and, you know, building is very much like this. And, um, hold on. Don't lose my train of thought. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Oh, well, hold on. Let me turn back the notes. Systematic insights. Oh man. 
Um, it's feeding back in on itself. Uh, significance, yeah. It's like at this moment in time, this thing is more significant than the others. Mm-hmm. So I can hold that as primary significance and have secondary, tertiary, yes. and and then I can move them depending yes. on, you know, say in this case, what time it is to do mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, opposed to just having one thing, you know, like just focusing on this one thing. Okay, it's salient. Yes. I can figure out how to, like, it's, uh, what was the word? Um, accordances. Yes. Affordances. Yeah. Affordances, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, what opportunities, and then the why. are in this object or this environment. Mm-hmm. And then the depth of it. But that's only one thing. When you can then designate significance, you can start yes. to really multitask really, with you, things. you can bypass the bullshit and no. the self-deception that can occur. So this is... No. This is why we cultivate wisdom. Mm-hmm. This is what helps us more finely tune our salience, landscapes, and then our presence, our depth, and ultimately our significance landscapes. The whole thing's recursive and feeds back in on itself. It becomes a reciprocal dance with reality and life. So we're experiencing that deep oneness, and we're experiencing a super flow kind of experience at, at once. Mm-hmm. And I have I have written here um, as a note the si- significance landscape always kind of goes goes back to the word of in insight of consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's the it, like this is the insight of yes, consciousness, yes. and it prevents what what you'd call stage yeah, locking. It's not something about consciousness or something about something that's in the theater of what we're looking at it's about consciousness itself it's an insight of about of reality of itself it. and how we fit to it of yeah of that not about it almost unspeakable of thing. it yes not at it not by it of it yes and experientially it's like as it it's a oneness with mm-hmm. and that waking up and it's that changing of your salience landscape that gives you this significant landscape this insight mm-hmm. of consciousness Yes, to wisely zero in on relevant info, to make life more meaningful, to have this mm-hmm. systematic improvement of salience. And I have a, the sig- uh, significance landscape affords us to to be able to do this. And I have a feeling that figuring out which altered states are illusionary and bullshit, and which ones actually are beneficial, you can use mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. idea mm-hmm. of shifting your salience landscape yes. to get the significance landscape the mm-hmm. insight of consciousness mm. like use these techniques you know it's like yeah i don't know you know dropping some acid and running around is fun and everything but like how are you doing it when you're doing it does it you know is this working out or do i just feel like garbage afterwards you know what what are the things in it that made me feel a certain way and how yeah, do I some intentionality them? behind yeah. why we're coming to what do i need to actually say like if you're taking any kind of sacred substance like yeah that. if you're taking an actual like medicine and a medicinal thing and then say mm-hmm. you don't get the right experience out of it you can start to reframe your salience in your landscape and be like okay well let's figure out this problem why am i not having this yeah. experience or getting yeah, are there any directions uh, that I could maybe follow? From yeah, experts? or why doesn't this activity work for me? You know, because everybody's a little different too. You know, I'm, sure. I'm not the sit under a, a, a sit under a waterfall meditating kind of dude. Yeah, I'm more of like hit it with a hammer and cut yourself and <laughs> burn yourself kind of dude. That's my meditation. You know, <laughs> but, life, you know, life is to be a meditation. Life can be an yeah. art, and that's 
I believe that to be the reason we cultivate the, the practice of mindfulness is to uh, increasingly be at one with existence and to be able to actuate through and as existence ever more able, ever more, with ever more uh, accuracy and integrity and capacity and potential for positive change that we can possibly admit. I mean, that's the best feeling thing to experience, to become a part of that. It's a very caring stewardship role to take as an earthling. I think it's our highest potential state. Certainly seems to be in accord with the evolutionary drive. Helps well, us be more just, symbiotic with one another and the environment. Let's just say it's, it's the next, the next highest state that we need to achieve. I want, yeah, you know, putting a limit on that is like, man, the they'll put a limit on it because there's always something. Well, yeah, well, it's the next, it's the next, the highest state. It, it is so much more awakening. The word Satsi is so good for it. Mm-hmm. Because it's when awakening into this infinite that we are. Well, and that's, that's well, you awaken and then you start your day. What's that start in the day on like the cosmic sense? Like what's, really? what's with that, you know? <laughs> like what kind of experience is that? If, it, if this is just the awakening and becoming awakened, well, mm. throughout your day, it's not just getting up, but doing... Um, have different experiences and and then you go back to sleep and you die and you wake up again and what's that <laughs> next day you know and i don't necessarily mean like reincarnation wise i just mean in the, like the sense of like once you awaken what's what are the then the next things that you do within that state because nothing in the universe really has a end no it's always just changing into something else mm-hmm cycling higher and higher and higher and then sometimes cycling back because you know well, that's part of it, into every, it in every life we do that it's the inward onward you know, yes inner and outward at once yep yeah. so uh did we cover everything there I uh, i've got all my notes yeah so why do some altered states show up as more real altered states of consciousness that's the question. Why do they feel realer than this reality? And reliably so, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yes. replicatably. And replicatably. Yeah, what what he said. Yeah, ably. <laughs> it's it's ably. one of those subfixes, you know, that mean things. All right, guys, we're going to jump back in here. Let's set up a problem. Because getting clear about the problem is half the battle. Formulating a problem well is much, much of the important work at trying to bring a solution to it. So we know that many people experience, as I've mentioned, these higher states of consciousness. And what reliably, we'll talk about the phenomenological profile in a bit, but reliably, what is characteristic of these states is that people find them to be really real and in, t- and in both directions arena and agent. They say, wow, that's the way the world really is. And they also say, this is who I really am. So much so that I'm going to transform my everyday experience so that it comes more consonant with that realness, that enhanced realness. So 
there's a, a mutual moreness, a mutual more realness that happens in these higher states of consciousness. And it's prescriptive. It demands change. It challenges people to change. It taps into those platonic meta drives of getting your fullness of being, your real self, and getting the fullness of contact reality. It twitches those on, and you go, I need to have that. I've got to tra- I'm willing to transform everything in order to get back to that really real world and that really real self. So I call this, so we have the higher states of consciousness, I call this the problem of the ontonormativity. Remember that ontology has to do with the structure of reality. Normative is when things are placing a demand on you to be better, to improve. So these higher states of consciousness are precisely experienced as higher because they're challenging you to change because they're presenting you more realness. And they're triggering those platonic meta-drives. Now, as I mentioned, these states are historically important and they're pervasive. So you can read uh, Taylor's book, uh, Waking from Sleep. He has about 150 uh, interviews. You can read many of the... He presents a lot of first-person narratives of these people in this experience. You can take a look at Newberg's book, um, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain. He did an online survey of 1,500 people in 2016. As I mentioned, uh, there's just larger general surveys of how often people have these kinds of experiences, and they range in intensity, but it's around 30 to 40 percent of the population. So we have to take these experiences seriously. We know that from the work at the Griffiths Lab that what's happening in a subset of psychedelic experiences, so here's all the psychedelic experiences, you have a subset in which people have a mystical experience, and some of those people, the mystical experience is deeply transformative. It triggers that kind of quantum change. Okay, so why is the ontonormativity of higher states of consciousness problematic? Well, here's why. The transformative experience that people undergo, the the radical transformations they're willing to uh, make, seems to be driven and justified by this. Why are you doing this? I'm doing this because I had this experience and it was more real and I've got to stay in touch with more real. They justify... This transformation, I mean, sorry, I don't mean to be reductive, and I'm not being disrespectful, but, you know, Buddhism and Taoism and Vedanta and the core of, you know, aspects of Judaism and the mystical traditions in Christianity and Islam come down to this claim, I had this, and it justifies what I'm telling you. It explains and motivates the changes that I underwent. But why is that problematic? Look, because it's, like I said, it's it's in contrast to how we treat most of our altered states of consciousness. We go into dreaming, we come back and we say, that's not real. We go into these, we come back and say, that was more real, and this is less real. 
Now, let me try and explicate this problem further. Look, why do you reject your dreaming as unreal? Why? Because when you're in the dream, it seems real. Because when you come out, that pattern, those things that happened in your dream, don't cohere with the rest of your life. You've got this overall coherent picture of your life. Intelligibility, remember Plato? This overall picture makes the most sense of the most of your experience. And if Plato's right, the more intelligible something is, the more real it is. This picture is more intelligible, it's more real. The, the dream is bizarre, it doesn't fit in. Ergo, less real. So, realness is something like the pattern of intelligibility with the widest scope. Wide and rich coherence of content. It makes the most sense of the most of your experience. Puts together your beliefs and your memories, etc. But, look what's happening in the higher state of consciousness. It's the exact reverse. You have this single experience... It doesn't cohere with the rest of your life because that's why it challenges the rest of your life. It doesn't cohere with the rest of the life. It tells you that the rest of this is illusory and you need to change it. In fact, the difference is so great that instead of rejecting it, you reject your everyday experience. So... The thing that you use to reject the dream... So, look at the picture. I use all of this, and I reject the dream. And then I have the higher state of consciousness, again, a single thing, and I use this to reject all of this. What's going on? The higher state of consciousness is a temporary experience. It does not cohere with the rest of our experience. That's how and why it can challenge and demand such radical transformation of our everyday life, our everyday self. And here's, here's what's even more, I don't know, perplexing. It does this without providing any new intelligible content. These experiences are traditionally ineffable. You can't put it into words. They're traditionally transrational. You can't give any argument or explanation or justification. How is it that this temporary experience that you... Uh, why? What was it? Describe the experience. I can't. I can't describe it. Well, can you explain to me what... I, no, I can't. I can't explain it. So there's no content. It's temporary. And yet, somehow... It goes the exact opposite of most altered states of consciousness. These states, these so-called higher states, should be the ones we most reject. They're temporary. They challenge all of our intelligibility coherence. They don't produce any viable explanation, any viable content, and yet we promote them as the really real and use them to reject our everyday experience. And that's the core of the axial revolution. This problem of the ontonormativity of higher states of consciousness goes to the heart of the axial revolution and the way it is still informing our very cognitive grammar and our existential ways of being right here, right now. 
That's the problem of the ontonormativity of higher states of consciousness. Now, we know that there's a possibility that altered states of consciousness can bring about a developmental improvement. But, but, but how? How? How do we tie this to this? Can we give an adequate enough explanation of these higher states of consciousness? And we need to do one that will help to explain why triggering them can be so transformative. Because here's the thing, Yadin's work shows people's lives do get better. They're not making it up. After they've had these, these higher states of consciousness, the, this count, encounter with the really real, their lives get better by all kinds of important measures, measures of meaning, relationship, prob- like, they get better. Okay, so what, what do we need? We need, we have to solve this problem. We have to make some progress on it. Now, we need actually two explanations that need to be integrated together. First of all, I need a descriptive explanation. I need an account of the underlying processes, cognitive, brain processes, we'll talk about this, that explain the phenomenological, the experiential nature of these states. Why do people, like when people describe what's happening in these states, why why does it have the features it has? It has to explain why people feel it being more real. Why it feels that it justifies, empowers, and motivates them to undergo transformative experience. But in in addition to something that's a descriptive account, I needed a prescriptive account. I mean, the first account is going to be largely psychological. This is what's happening, and this is why people are experiencing the the way they're experiencing it. That's descriptively adequate. But prescriptively adequate has to show me this. Is it actually a legitimate thing? Do these states actually provide a rational justification and a guide for the transformation that people are claiming on their behalf. Are these states actually philosophically justifiable? Or is their claim to ontonormativity all just an illusion? Is it rationally justifiable? Now this prescriptive account must integrate with the mechanisms and processes of the descriptive account in order to be overall coherent, in order to give us the best explanation of how and why these states are operating. So the descriptive account, the best way to do this is to do a cognitive scientific approach. Now, at some point I'm going to teach you in this series how to do good cognitive science, but one of what we're doing in good cognitive science, is we're plausibly trying to integrate different levels in our descriptive analysis. My descriptive account should give me a good account of the cognitive processes that are at work in the mind. It should give me a good account, and that's going to rely largely on psychology. It should also give me a good account of the information processes that are at work. 
that's going to rely on ideas drawn from artificial intelligence and machine learning because that's the project when we're trying to most understand and optimize information processing. It should also draw on neuroscientific accounts of what's happening in the brain. I need an account that simultaneously elucidates each one of these, the cognitive mechanisms, the machine learning mechanisms, and the neurological mechanisms, but and does that in an integrative, mutually informative fashion. I want a plausible integration. That's what I need for the good descriptive account. That's what I'm going to give. I'm going to try and argue how we can understand why these higher states of consciousness are the way they are in terms of both cognitive, in terms of all of those, the cognitive, the machine learning, and the neuroscientific level. After I'm doing that, I'm going to then endeavor to try and show you how those processes, the cognitive processes, the information processing processes, the neurological processes, actually provide a rational justification for the transformation that the people undertake. But it's not the kind of justification you might be expecting. What I'm going to argue for is that it is not that these states provide us with any special knowledge. Because these states are not about changing evidence, acquiring new evidence the way science. And we should not use these higher states of consciousness as a way of challenging our scientific claims. And many people will do this. But the mistake is to then think, well, that's it. That's the sum total. We've shown that these higher states of consciousness don't generate reliable kinds of knowledge, so we should reject them as irrational. No, because that's, again, to think that the whole point of your cognition and your rationality is to get better beliefs. And I've already been showing you through this series that there's much more to it. When the child no longer falls prey to the illusion, no no new facts have been discovered. The child knew that there were five candies on top and below. No new facts. It's not like there's been a new scientific discoveries about space or candies. What changed? What changed is not knowledge. What changed was wisdom. The child has learned to see through illusion and into reality. And what I want to pursue with you is this idea that higher states of cognition are rational, not because they provide us with new knowledge. Look, look, people go into these states and they come out with exactly opposite conclusions. You can re- I've read so many of these reports. People go in and they have this higher state of consciousness and they say, oh, and I knew God. People go in, they have this higher state of consciousness, and I knew there was no God. Exactly the opposite. The content is diametrically opposite. People will say varied metaphysical claims. What's changing is not the content not this or that piece of knowledge, 
What's changing is your functioning. You're not gaining knowledge, you're gaining wisdom. You're gaining skills and sensibilities and sensitivities of significance landscaping that radically transform your existential mode. That is why, for example, that the Buddha famously refused to answer metaphysical questions about nirvana, about enlightenment. Because that's not the point. That's not what this is about. This is not about getting supra-scientific knowledge. This is about getting extraordinary wisdom and transformation. We're going to take a look more at trying to answer the problem of higher states of consciousness next time. And we'll return also back to discovering, uh, discussing more how the Buddha integrated that into trying to deal with some of the deepest problems that we face as entities that have to realize relevance, pursue salience, deal with existential anxiety, cultivate significance and meaning, try and overcome our illusions and delusions, and find a fullness of being and an optimal grip on the world. Thank you very much for your time. Episode, right? Oh man, they just keep getting better and better. And better. <laughs> that that they do, that they do, indeed. Okay, so uh, good deal to cover here. I think we're back at problem well stated is half mm, solved. Yes. So we're going to try and describe the problem. Why do higher states of consciousness reliably allow us deep sense of meaning and positive transformation in our lives? Well, we find them to be really real in a both agent and arena sense. Mm -hmm. Both of them tied together. That's it. Uh, what is this mutual realness yeah, we get a sense of how the arena or how the world really is mm-hmm. that's the sense of it really real how the world really is and then the agent like who i really am this idea of who i really am becomes more pronounced and more comprehensive and deeper sensed and felt and that almost challenges one to change mm-hmm. um to transform to transform so they can yeah so they can live as that and mm-hmm. have to be that. more in that fullness of being and that that contact yeah. with i just got to get back to it man yeah yeah right <laughs> so that willingness to transform mm-hmm. uh and he called onto normativity onto normativity yeah. yeah and then normativity being the demands to improve and onto is the what is that that's the the oh, demands that, to improve, and then I missed the onto part. Uh, okay, well, let's figure it out. We've 
if if you got old enough notes, we have much older notes uh, like ontology, which is an ology oh, yeah. of understanding of reality, of reality of the overarching everything yeah. of reality. So the demand to improve your understanding of the ultimate everything mm-hmm. and the the real the, the ultimately real. And so yeah, yes, the, yes, because it challenges us to change to be more present to feel more realness and this is uh this call for on onto normativity it's it meets our meta drives our needs for meaning and belonging it's not just normal it's onto normal mm-hmm. it's a challenge it's like it, well it's a good it's a good explanation for that that feeling you get that makes you want to it's a motivation. Yeah, it's motivating. Yeah, like, yeah. It's like inspiring. I, I it's want that kind I of, wanted that. That yeah. was that was real. That was right. Mm-hmm. I want that. I want to be more and, and more that, in accord that with drive that. that pushes yes. you to so it changes there. the way you live. It's a good it's a good closer. word for that. I'm gonna have to use it more. Yeah. I like to explain that feeling because, like, to break it down into like, you know, not psychological terms, but like the you know person who starts working out and starts to feel healthy and strong and then sees somebody else who's further down the line i want that that is not onto norm uh normativity but that would be like a you know equivalent of it that's like you see something you want it that's real that's achievable i can do Mm -hmm. that so now i got to start changing me and the things around me that are keeping me from doing that, which also has its flaws, though. Like what are you saying? You you know you can de- deny reality because you want something to be so much that. Yes, yes. You know, because the world, like you know, the realer than real world that you go into when you have these experiences is great and everything, but you live in this one. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. live in your body in real life, and you yes. can't you can't ignore that. No, or ignore no, that at your no. own peril. Yeah, you know, you, you re- it's like you resonate with something deeper that's more foundational, mm-hmm. and it's like pre-rational. It's it's pre-existence. It feels like the substrate of reality and that higher state of consciousness. So you understand the whys and the reasons mm-hmm. for, and even some of the how, um, but you can't come back with actual knowledge, and that's certainly not the point. It's to help yeah. us to to align ourselves ever more is to develop wisdom to cultivate that sense of presence and continual dancing with that reciprocal relation with reality. Well, isn't it cool that we can like have an experience that it doesn't have to give us knowledge, but is so insightful and groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. It's helping us tune in though. It's they not get, telling yeah. us anything. It, it, it like when we have this experience, it helps you telling, develop your skills and your yeah, sensibilities, like, but yeah, I guess it doesn't have to tell you. <laughs> no, 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 because it's just making you a, a better agent. Yes, there's no, there's no info necessarily within these experiences. Wiser, it a, just, a wiser agent. Well, yeah, it puts you in that mode of being. Yes, you're, you're remembering that mode of being. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, and, it's not the content that changes, but the functions. And our thirty, thirty-four <laughs> to forty percent of us go through it. So that's that's, that's not a majority, but that's definitely yes. a big plurality. Of people yeah yeah especially when it's no longer an integral part of our cultures mm-hmm. as it used to be every uh culture before us and especially in prehistory is this was interwoven our deep sense of the sacred and a ritualistic approach to being and to life 
to be in an interchange with this the conti- continuous cosmos mm-hmm. that's that's what we lost and so now we're mm. reawakening that mm-hmm. sense of a continuous cosmos again and Viveki is going to help us do, do, do this in a way that agrees with science and the orders of rationality. So that's, this is going to help break down a lot of walls. I like the way he's approaching this. So yeah, higher states of cons- consciousness. Um, okay, well, he, he, he lists a couple books. How they challenge us to change. Okay, so we we looked at the Waking from Sleep book and then How to Change Your Brain. And he talked about psychedelic mystical experiences that trigger this quantum change as well. And all of this work, um, claiming that higher states of consciousness are relevant because they show up as more real is because what our brain is constantly, constantly trying to do is get an overall picture of reality that is the more intelligible, the more real, the more meaningful, the more able is the agent in the arena. Mm-hmm. All of those things that it needs to survive and to thrive are met. So that realness of pattern, of intelligible of intelligible patterns in the widest scope possible is mm-hmm. what occurs in the higher state of consciousness, including psychedelically induced. Yeah. And the temporality of the experience does not actually decrease its effect on on our sense of its reality or how much it matters it actually stands out as the realist mm-hmm. of the real and that's that's one of the things that can make you forget the you know, well that's the thing that will make you like forget about your real world and not want to be here you know because like mm-hmm. whereas you don't want to be like constantly sleeping in your dreams you know this is this being awake and well, just Real trying to be in that better, state, but, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's certainly not the answer because it's given you an answer to this reality. Well, it's because ha- these are how to turn all this reality in into that realer than real the, well, and yeah. integrate that yeah, into the, this the real. realization can encompass mm-hmm. the realization that this reality and that reality are one and the same. Mm-hmm. They're just being seen from different vantage points or different levels of awareness. One, one mm-hmm. could say, and depending on you know what you need they're interdependent yeah yeah and and so yeah they give us insights into how to experience this life itself as more miraculous you know we realize that our perception of the world was illusory the ways that we were thinking about the world and interacting with the world the ways that we were seeing the world and genuinely experiencing the world Mm -hmm. were based off of an illusory illusory mindset that's the great realization that occurs in the higher state of consciousness Mm -hmm. and you sense this deep sense of interconnection and oneness with all things and everything around you it's deep sense of love and resonance with it all and it's experiential rather than intellectual yet mm-hmm. this certainly imbues such a deep sense of meaning and wanting to be closer more in congruent with that state of being in congruence with this one sense of oneness with earth and everyone around us and the cosmos and the rest it makes our, what it inspires ma- makes them useful and it measurably makes 
people's lives better having these experiences and we can measure Certainly, we can yeah. we can measure it like yeah not just doing psychedelics per se but having a higher state well yeah getting into one way or another getting into sort that of higher state. experience a higher level mystical experience but whether you're a rock climber musician psychonaut or any of that getting into these higher states are beneficial for yes. people. However, and, you're able to do and, it, whether yeah. it be by fasting or yoga or, or plant medicines, as we're or even just here. living a simple life and keeping all your plants alive and building this, you know, nice mm. little garden and doing that. Looking around in the forest a little yeah. bit, laying in the sun, yeah. riding in the afternoon. Yeah. Always the mountain top are legit. Mm-hmm. And he gets into. Um, uh, descriptive we need a descriptive process as well as a proscriptive process yes and the descriptive like process well, we need like you know cognitive science neuroscience machine learning and we need the integ- what is it uh, integrated levels and descriptive analysis that's, mm-hmm. yeah that's what it was somehow for some reason yeah, I descriptive accounts prescriptive accounts so that we yeah. can make well yes yes justify it the prescription is justification why are higher (laughs) states of consciousness why are these states yeah rationally justifiable yeah rational and you know i I guess morally is not the right word but like kind of morally too in other ways morally in a scientific sense and that we're trying to honor a methodology here to make sure that it's not just our bias and mere curiosity stirring us but and we're not just shooting in the dark just to shoot there are legitimate reasons to consider this because it seems to be happening and uh so we're going to take a cog approach to integrating the different levels of consciousness and descriptive analysis we're going to make an account of the cognitive processes involved in higher states the informational processes this has uh effects in ai as you said and machine learning we're going to look at the neuroscientific side, what's actually happening in the brain, and how is it that higher states are doing this in a unified fashion, or doing what they do in a unified fashion. How can we explain this in a unified fashion, perhaps, is what I wrote down there. Yeah, And I guess my last note on all this, it's about wisdom, not belief. Mm-hmm. Because yes. you're not getting beliefs, like because the beliefs aren't measurably the same. Because, like he said, some people can be like, "Well, I knew God," and other people, "I knew there wasn't God." You know, right. it, but wisdom can still come out of them, regardless of what the belief is behind it. Mm-hmm. So this is a beyond belief system. Yeah, they're this not is, providing special knowledge so much as or new evidence, yeah. but because we're not looking for better beliefs here, we're not just looking for knowledge. Mm-hmm. Here. We're looking for a how. Yeah, and improved uh, how learning how to see a better way of life. making beliefs. If we yes. choose to make beliefs, you know, like how how to learn, like as if you're going to make a belief, like how to how understand to together. Yeah, and why do you believe this? And then maybe breaking your beliefs. Yeah, conflicting mm-hmm. beliefs. So yeah, we'll, we'll deepen our skills and sensitivities, radically transform the existential mode. Because it's not about yeah getting more knowledge. It's about cultivating wisdom for transformation. Mm-hmm. That's that's very much what I took from that. There's one thing here on this other page I wanted to note. He he was looking looking at studies of people that had had uh, mystical experiences mm-hmm. during psychedelic trips, and 
recognizing that this experience is transrational. The, the insight that it provides, mm. it's deeper than rational. Mm. And these people experience in all measures of life and their meaning, their relationships, their sense of belonging and fulfillment and peace for long periods of time. And we're going to get more into that in these forthcoming episodes. Cheers. Next episode, we go straight into higher states of consciousness. So we're going to go into a deep dive into this very subject. Can you take me higher? High as you can go. I want to take you higher. But Vake, you're going to take us there. That was a good one. That was a good one. That was a good one. I I really appreciate that he's put so much time into this work and that he has this such broad expertise as he has. He's not just uh, an intellect, but he himself seems to practice the wisdom Mm. technologies, psychotechnologies, in order to really live what he's realized through his studies and that would be the best way to be able to explicate it explain it to all of us so yeah it's john verveke is definitely worth subscribing to his ongoing conversations dialogos conversations that he has with many different individuals are amazing oh and he's actually finally starting to pop up normally in my feed and i haven't really done much different Something changed, but I'm starting to see more I've of that stuff now. He's hit Aubrey Mar- Marcus's podcast. He's hit Lex Friedman's podcast now. He's had uh, some great conversations with Daniel Schmachtenberger, uh, the guys on the STOA, um, Rebel Wisdom, and m- many other places. Now, a lot of smaller podcasts have been picking him up. And I look forward to inviting Verveke on to this very podcast. Um, Perhaps when we finish the series here. Or maybe a, a Berveke expert if we can't get the man himself. But we'll we'll continue to follow what Berveke's up to here because it does seem to get at the very root of the crises going on in the world today, the mini mm-hmm. existential compounding crises that are uh, threatening our species uh, potential future survival, but at the very least, our stability. And we're trying to do our best here to hand down this world at least as well as it was given to us. I hope. No, I hope to leave it for better. The next man, several generations. I don't know. If I'm a little bitter. I'm I'd like to leave it better. I, I, yeah, I, I'd like it better because I think what, at least my generation, what we were left with was kind of like after everybody had the fun party and they just left everything a fucking wreck. Sorry. And we're still getting the tail end yeah. of of that, uh, that's for sure. That's just the bitter side of me. Like, that's just the bitter side of me. There's another side of that's optimistic and respects those that came before me and all that. But, you know, life's real. And uh, That roomy quote that Schmachtenberger, Berger, gosh, this guy's name, Daniel Schmachtenberger was saying um, in that, that, uh, one YouTube show that I shared with you. How we can see life as hopeless because of all that's happening, mm-hmm. but we can also witness the miracle. 
the ongoing miracle. Mm-hmm. And he, yeah. he was responding to this uh, idea, this slogan that came about in political activism around the 60s and 70s, that if you're not upset, you're not paying attention, or if you're not yeah. pissed off, you're not paying attention. And he said, well, you know, Rumi said, if you're not in awe, then you're not, if you're not in a constant state of awe, you're not paying attention. And Einstein also said that, you know, those... The that, shift of framing, if you will, mm-hmm. of how you see Yeah, if you don't experience everything as a miracle, then you're as good as dead, was uh, Einstein's That's, that's pretty much it. the only thing that keeps me going, is realizing how, like, beautiful and awesome and wonderful the, you know, yeah. the universe is. And that's why is. we can be so disappointed. Yeah. Yeah, so the source yeah. of the that sadness, that strain, that restriction in ourselves against what's happening in the world, that anger, is coming... It actually comes from something beautiful, so beautiful. This is really helpful to remember when someone you love is nearing their end or passes away. Is oh, the source of my sadness and loss is something so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And you can stay in that place of celebrating that beauty and honoring that beauty and still just as, you know, uh, thoroughly, I guess, honor that loved one and honor life. There's a part of us that feels like we have to punish ourselves almost sometimes, but yeah. we we don't have to. We just take note and then honor. And that's actually the best way. It's the most healing, comforting, empowering way, it seems. Yeah. No, it's it's better than the uh, the other alternative. Just yeah. being a sad sap and or yeah. being nihilistic and not believing. No, forgive not we got to forgive ourselves. Forgive yourselves. Forgive yourself. We're doing so much better than we give ourselves credit for. We are we are fallible beings. We are not perfect. We're not at the end of the story. We're not supposed to be perfect angels yet. These highly well, evolved. That would be boring if you were just you know if transgalactic species. That's the one thing. One, one flying of, around, spreading love and light, or something like. We're just not angels yet. Well, the, we're the here thing in the that makes the story. us so wonderful is the fact that we're not all that. We're not supposed to be. We're not the end goal. That would be boring. Right, no. Yeah, we're, we're building we're up. The part, we're we're, we're building up to it, you know. This, yeah. Well, the best part of an RPG is is building your guy and maxing him out. Once he's maxed out, it's just boring, yeah, boring. you know. Oh, yeah, it's the journey. <laughs> yeah. It really is the journey. Yeah. And on that note, thank you guys for joining us on this learning journey with John Verveke and the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series. This has been uh, ten episodes down now. And we're looking forward to you guys joining us on the next 40. It's going to get good. This ride's just going to get better and better and better. And if you find this interesting, definitely check out the previous episodes. And definitely check out uh, John Verbeke's channel himself. You can watch this whole series on there. And take advantage of that speed up or slow down and rewind when you need to. To make sure you're getting a a good full grasp of what he's breaking down here. Because... If, if you've been following us even for a few of these episodes already, you may be seeing how useful some of these insights are and how useful they can be for humanity as a whole. And mm-hmm. Yeah, name of the game. So thank you guys for tuning in. Make sure to like and subscribe, and we'll talk to you soon. I've been DJ. Peace. I've been Chris. Love you guys.